Part 4 of Volume 2 of Plutarch's Parallel Lives. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume 2 of Plutarch's Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans. Translated by Bernadotte Perrin. Camillus, Part 1. Turning now to Furious Camillus, among the many notable things that are told of him, this seems the most singular and strange, namely, that although in other offices of command he won many and great successes, and although he was five times chosen dictator, four times celebrated a triumph, and was styled a second founder of Rome, not even once was he consul. The reason for this lay in the political conditions of his time. The common people, being at variance with the Senate, strove against the appointment of consuls, and elected military tribunes to the command instead. These, although they always acted with consular authority and power, were less obnoxious in their sway because of their number. For the fact that six men instead of two stood at the head of affairs was some comfort to those who were bitterly set against the rule of the few. Now it was at this period that Camillus came to the height of his achievements and fame, and he would not consent to become consul over a reluctant people, although during his career the city tolerated consular elections many times. But in the many other and varied offices which he held, he so conducted himself that even when the authority rightly belonged to him alone, it was exercised in common with others, while the glory that followed such exercise was his alone, even when he shared the command. In the first case, it was his moderation that kept his rule from exciting envy. In the second, it was his ability that gave him the first place with none to dispute it. At a time when the house of the Fury was not yet very conspicuous, he, by his own efforts, was the first of his clan to achieve fame. This he did in the great battle with the Aequans and Volscians, serving under Postumius Tubertus, the dictator. Dashing out on his horse in front of the army, he did not abate his speed when he got a wound in the thigh, but dragging the missile along with him in its wound, he engaged the bravest of the enemy and put them to flight. For this exploit, among other honors bestowed upon him, he was appointed censor, in those days an office of great dignity. There is on record a noble achievement of his censorship, that of bringing the unmarried men, partly by persuasion and partly by threatening them with fines, to join in wedlock with the women who were living in widowhood, and these were many because of the wars. Likewise a necessary achievement, that of making the orphans, who before this had contributed nothing to the support of the state, subject to taxation. The continuous campaigns, demanding great outlays of money, really required this. Especially burdensome was the siege of Veii, some call the people Veientani. The city was the barrier and bulwark of Tuscany, in quantity of arms and multitude of soldiery, no whit inferior to Rome. Indeed, pluming herself on her wealth, and on the refinement, luxury, and sumptuousness in which her citizens lived, she had waged many noble contests for glory and power, 
in her wars with the Romans. At this time, however, she had been crushed in great battles, and had given up her former ambitious pretensions. But her people built their walls high and strong, filled the city full of armor, missiles, grain, and every possible provision, and confidently endured their siege, which, though long, was no less laborious and difficult for the besiegers. These had been accustomed to short campaigns abroad as the summer season opened, and to winters at home, but then for the first time they had been compelled by their tribunes to build forts and fortify their camp, and spend both summer and winter in the enemy's country, the seventh year of the war being now nearly at an end. For this their rulers were held to blame, and finally deprived of their rule, because they were sought to conduct the siege without energy. Others were chosen to carry on the war, and one of these was Camillus, now tribune for the second time. But for the present he had nothing to do with the siege, since it fell to his lot to wage war with the Falerians and the Capenats, who, while the Romans had their hands full, had often harried their territory, and during all the Tuscan war had given them annoyance and trouble. These were overwhelmed by Camillus in battle, and shut up in their fastnesses with great loss of life. And now when the war was at its climax, the calamity of the Alban lake added its terrors. It seemed a most incredible prodigy, without familiar cause or natural explanation. For the season was autumn, and the summer just ended had, to all observation, been neither rainy nor vexed by south winds. Of the lakes, rivers, and streams of all sizes, with which Italy abounds, some had failed utterly, others barely managed to hold out, and all the rivers ran low between high banks, as was always the case in summer. But the Alban lake, which had its source and outlet within itself, and was girt about with fertile mountains, for no reason except it be that heaven willed it, was observed to increase and swell until it reached the skirts of the mountains, and gradually touched their highest ridges. All this rise was without surge or billow. At first it was a prodigy for neighboring shepherds and herdsmen, but when the volume and weight of water broke away the barrier, which, like an isthmus, had kept the lake from the country lying below it, and the huge torrent poured down through the fields and vineyards, and made its way to the sea, then not only were the Romans themselves dismayed, but all the inhabitants of Italy thought it a sign of no small evil to come. There was much talk about it in the army that was besieging Veii, so that even the besieged themselves heard of the calamity. As was to be expected in a long siege requiring many meetings for conference with the enemy, it fell out that a certain Roman became intimate and confidential with one of the citizens of Veii, a man versed in ancient oracles, and reputed wiser than the rest from his being a diviner. The Romans saw that this man, on hearing the story of the lake, was overjoyed and made mock of the siege. He therefore told him this was not the only wonder which the passing days had brought, but that other and stranger signs than this had been given to the Romans, of which he was minded to tell him, in order that, if possible, he might better his own private case in the midst of the public distresses. The man gave eager hearing to all this, 
and consented to unconference, supposing that he was going to hear some deep secrets. But the Roman led him along little by little, conversing as he went, until they were some way beyond the city gate, when he seized him bodily, being a sturdier man than he, and with the help of comrades who came running up from the camp, mastered him completely, and handed him over to the generals. Thus constrained, and perceiving that fate's decrees were not to be evaded, the men revealed secret oracles regarding his native city, to the effect that it could not be captured until the Alban lake, after leaving its bed and making new channels for itself, should be driven back by the enemy, deflected from its course, and prevented from mingling with the sea. The Senate, on hearing this, was at great loss what to do, and thought it well to send an embassy to Delphi to consult the god. The envoys were men of great repute and influence, Cossus Licinius, Valerius Potitus, and Fabius Ambustus, who made their voyage and came back with the responses of the god. One of these told them that certain ancestral rites, connected with the so-called Latin festivals, had been unduly neglected. Another bade them by all means to keep the water of the Alban lake away from the sea, and force it back into its ancient bed. Or, if they could not effect this, by means of canals and trenches, to divert it into the plain and dissipate it. On the receipt of these responses, the priests performed the neglected sacrifices, and the people sallied out into the fields, and diverted the course of the water. In the tenth year of the war, the Senate abolished the other magistracies, and appointed Camillus dictator. After choosing Cornelius Scipio as his master of horse, in the first place he made solemn vows to the gods, that in case the war had a glorious ending, he would celebrate the great games in their honor, and dedicate a temple to the goddess whom the Romans called Mater Matuta. From the sacred rites used in the worship of this goddess, she might be held to be almost identical with Leucothea. The woman bring a serving maid into the sanctuary, and beat her with rods, then drive her forth again. They embrace their nephews and nieces in preference to their own children, and their conduct at the sacrifice resembles that of the nurses of Dionysus, or that of Eno under the afflictions put upon her by her husband's concubine. After his vows, Camillus invaded the country of the Faliscans, and conquered them in a great battle, together with the Capenets, who came up to their aid. Then he turned to the siege of Veii, and seeing that direct assault upon the city was a grievous and difficult matter, he went to digging mines, since the region round the city favored such works, and allowed their being carried to a great depth without the enemies knowing about it. So then, when his hopes were well on their way to fulfillment, he himself assaulted the city from the outside, and thus called the enemy away to mend their walls, while others secretly made their way along the mines, and reached unnoticed the interior of the citadel, where the temple of Juno stood, the largest temple in the city, and the one most held in honor. There, it is said, at this very juncture, the commander of the Tuscans chanced to be sacrificing, and his seer, when he beheld the entrails of the victim, cried out with a loud voice, and said, that the god awarded victory to him who should fulfill that sacrifice. 
The Romans in the mines below, hearing this utterance, quickly tore away the pavement of the temple, and issued forth with battle cries and clash of arms, whereat the enemy were terrified and fled away. The sacrificial entrails were then seized and carried to Camillus, but possibly this will seem like fable. At any rate, the city was taken by storm, and the Romans were pillaging and plundering its boundless wealth, when Camillus, seeing from the citadel what was going on, at first burst into tears as he stood, and then, on being congratulated by the bystanders, lifted up his hands to the gods and prayed, saying, O greatest Jupiter, and ye gods who see and judge men's good and evil deeds, ye surely know that it is not unjustly, but of necessity and in self-defense, that we Romans have visited its iniquity upon this city of hostile and lawless men. But if, as counterpoise to this our present success, some retribution is due to come upon us, spare, I beseech you, the city and the army of the Romans, and let it fall upon my own head, though with a little harm as may be. With these words, as the Romans' custom is after prayer and adoration, he wheeled himself about to the right, but stumbled and fell as he turned. The bystanders were confounded, but he picked himself up again from his fall and said, My prayer is granted. I a slight fall is my atonement for the greatest good fortune. After he had utterly sacked the city, he determined to transfer the image of Juno to Rome, in accordance with his vows. The workmen were assembled for the purpose, and Camillus was sacrificing and praying the goddess to accept of their zeal, and to be a kindly codweller with the gods of Rome, when the image, they say, spoke in low tones, and said she was ready and willing. But Levi says that Camillus did indeed lay his hand upon the goddess, and pray and beseech her, but that it was certain of the bystanders who gave answer that she was ready and willing and eager to go along with him. Those who insist upon and defend the marvel have a most powerful advocate for their contention in the fortune of the city, which, from its small and despised beginning, could never have come to such a pinnacle of glory and power, had God not dwelt with her, and made many great manifestations of himself from time to time. Moreover, they adduce other occurrences of a kindred sort, such as statues often dripping with sweat, images uttering audible groans, turning away their faces, and closing their eyes, as not a few historians in the past have written. And we ourselves might make mention of many astonishing things which we have heard from men of our own time, things not lightly to be despised. But in such matters, eager credulity and excessive incredulity are alike dangerous, because of the weakness of our human nature, which sets no limits and has no mastery over itself, but is carried away, now into vain superstition, and now into contemptuous neglect of the gods. Caution is best, and to go to no extremes. Whether it was due to the magnitude of his exploit in taking a city which could view with Rome and endure a siege of ten years, or to the congratulations showed upon him, Camillus was lifted up to vanity, cherished thoughts far from becoming to a civil magistrate subject to the law, and celebrated a triumph with great pomp, 
he actually had four white horses harnessed to a chariot on which he mounted a drove through Rome, a thing which no commander had ever done before, or afterwards did. For they thought such a car sacred and devoted to the king and father of the gods. In this way he incurred the enmity of the citizens, who were not accustomed to wanton extravagance. They had also a second grievance against him, in that he opposed himself to a law dividing the city. The tribunes introduced a measure dividing the people and the senate into two parts, one to remain and dwell there, and the one on which the lot fell to remove into the city they had captured, on the ground that they would thus be more commodiously bestowed, and with two large and fair cities could better protect their territory as well as their prosperity in general. Accordingly the people, which was now become numerous and poor, welcomed the measure with delight, and was forever thronging tumultuously about the roster with demands that it be put to vote. But the Senate, and the most influential of the other citizens, considered that the measure proposed by the tribunes meant not division, but destruction for Rome, and in their aversion to it went to Camillus for aid and succor. He, dreading the struggle, always contrived to keep the people busy with other matters, and so staved off the passage of the bill. For this reason, then, they were vexed with him. But the strongest and most apparent reason why the multitude hated him was based on the matter of the tents of the spoil of Veii, and herein they had a plausible, though not a very just ground of complaint. He had vowed, as it seems, on setting out against Veii, that if he should take the city, he would consecrate the tents of its booty to the Delphian god. But after the city had been taken and sacked, he allowed his soldiers full enjoyment of their plunder, either because he shrank from annoying them, or because, in the multitude of his activities, he as good as forgot his woe. At a later time, when he had laid down his command, he referred the matter to the senate, and the seers announced tokens in their sacrifices that the gods were angry, and must be propitiated with due offerings. The senate voted, not that the booty should be redistributed, for that would have been a difficult matter, but that those who had got it should, in person and under oath, bring the tents thereof to the public treasury. This subjected the soldiers to many vexations and constraints. They were poor men who had toiled hard, and yet were now forced to contribute a large share of what they had gained, yes, and spent already. Beset by their tumultuous complaints, and at loss for a better excuse, Camillus had recourse to the absurdest of all explanations, and admitted that he had forgotten his vow. The soldiers were filled with indignation at the thought that it was the goods of the enemy of which he had once vowed as this, but the goods of his fellow citizens from which he was now paying the tithe. However, all of them brought in the necessary portion, and it was decided to make a bowl of massive gold and send it to Delphi. Now there was a scarcity of gold in the city, and the magistrates knew not whence it could be had. So the women, of their own accord, determined to give the gold ornaments which they wore upon their persons for the offering, and these amounted to eight talents' weight. The women were fittingly rewarded by the Senate, which voted that thereafter, 
When women died, a suitable eulogy should be spoken over them as over men. For it was not customary before that time, when a woman died, that a public encomium should be pronounced. Then they chose three of the noblest citizens as envoys, manned with its full complement of their best sailors a ship of war decked out in festal array, and sent them on their way. Calm at sea has its perils as well as storm, it would seem, at least so it proved in this case. Envoys and crew came within an ace of destruction, and found escape from their peril when they least expected it. Of the Aeolian Isles, as the wind died down, some riparian galleys put out against them, taking them for pirates. The enemy had sufficient regard to their prayers and supplications not to run their vessel down, but they took it in town, brought it to land, and proclaimed their goods and persons for sale, adjudging them piratical. At last, and with much ado, through the brave intercession of a single man, Timesitheus, their general, the Liparians were persuaded to let the captives go. This man then launched boats of his own, convoyed the suppliants on their way, and assisted them in the dedication of their offering. For this he received suitable honors at Rome. Once more the tribunes of the people urged the passage of the law for the division of the city, but the war with the Faliscans came on opportunely, and gave the leading men occasion to hold such elective assemblies as they wished, and to appoint Camillus, military tribune, with five others. The emergency was thought to demand a leader with the dignity and reputation which experience alone could give. After the people had ratified the election, Camillus, at the head of his army, invaded the territory of the Faliscans and laid siege to Faleri, a strong city, and well equipped with all the munitions of war. It was not that he thought its capture would demand slight effort or short time, but he wished to turn the thoughts of the citizens to other matters, and keep them busy therein, that they might not be able to stay at home, and become the prey of seditious leaders. This was a fitting and sovereign remedy, which the Romans used, like good physicians, thereby expelling from the body politic its troublesome distempters. The Falerians, relying on the great strength of their city at all points, made so light of the siege that, with the exception of the defenders of the walls, the rest went up and down the city in their garb of peace. The boys went to school as usual, and were brought by their teacher along the walls outside to walk about and get their exercise. For the Falerians, like the Greeks, employed one teacher in common, wishing their boys, from the very start, to herd with one another and grow up together. This teacher then, wishing to betray Faleri by means of its boys, led them out every day beyond the city walls, at first only a little way, and then brought them back inside when they had taken their exercise. Presently he led them little by little, farther and farther out, accustomed them to feel confident that there was no danger at all, and finally pushed in among the Roman outposts with his whole company, handed them over to the enemy, and demanded to be led to Camillus. So led, and in that presence, he said he was a boy's schoolteacher, but chose rather to win the general's favor than to fulfill the duties of his office, and so had come bringing to him the city in the persons of its boys. 
it seemed to Camillus, on hearing him, that the man had done a monstrous deed, and turning to the bystanders he said, War is indeed a grievous thing, and is waged with much injustice and violence. But even war has certain laws which good and brave men will respect, and we must not so hotly pursue victory as not to flee the favors of base and impious doers. The great general will wage war relying on his own native valor, not on the baseness of other men. Then he ordered his attendants to tear the man's clothing from him, tie his arms behind his back, and put rods and scourges in the hands of the boys, that they might chastise the traitor and drive him back into the city. The Valerians had just become aware of the teacher's treachery, and the whole city, as was natural, was filled with lamentation over calamities so great. Men and women alike rushed distractedly to the walls and gates, when, lo, there came the boys, bringing their teacher back stripped, bound, and maltreated, while they called Camillus their saviour, their father, and their god. On this wise not only the parents of the boys, but the rest of the citizens as well, when they beheld the spectacle, were seized with admiration and longing for the righteousness of Camillus. In haste they held an assembly, and sent envoys to him, entrusting him with their lives and fortunes. These envoys Camillus sent to Rome. Standing in the Senate they declared that the Romans, by esteeming righteousness above victory, had taught them to love defeat above freedom, not so much because they thought themselves inferior in strength, as because they confessed themselves vanquished in virtue. On the Senate's remanding to Camillus, the decision and disposition of the matter, he took a sum of money from the Falerians, established friendship with all the Faliscans, and withdrew. But the soldiers sought to have had the sacking of Faleri, and when they came back to Rome empty-handed, they denounced Camillus to the rest of the citizens, as a hater of the common people, and as begrudging to the poor the enjoyment of their rightful booty. And when the tribunes once more put forward the law for the division of the city, and summoned the people to vote upon it, then Camillus, shunning no hatred nor any boldness of utterance, was manifestly the chief one in forcing the multitude away from its desires. Therefore they did indeed reject the law, much against their will, but they were wroth with Camillus, so that even when he met with domestic affliction, and lost one of his two sons by sickness, their wrath was in no wise softened by pity. And yet he set no bounds to his sorrow, being by nature a gentle and kindly man. But even after the indictment against him had been published, he suffered his grief to keep him at home, in close seclusion with the woman of his household. Well then, his accuser was Lucius Apuleius, and the charge was theft of Tuscan goods. It was said forsooth that certain bronze doors belonging to the booty had been seen at his house. But the people were exasperated, and would plainly lay hold of any pretext, whatever, for condemning him. So then he assembled his friends and comrades in arms, who were many in number, and begged them not to suffer him to be convicted on base charges, and to be made a laughing-stock by his foes. When his friends had laid their heads together, and discussed the case, they answered that, as regarded his trial, they saw they could be of no help to him. 
but if he were punished with a fine, they would help him pay it. This he could not endure, and in his wrath determined to depart the city and go into exile. Accordingly, after he had kissed his wife and son goodbye, he went from his house in silence as far as the gate of the city. There he stopped, turned himself about, and stretching his hands out towards the capital, prayed the gods that, if with no justice, but through the wantonness of the people and the abuse of the envious, he was now being driven from his country, the Romans might speedily repent, and show to all men that they needed and longed for Camillus. End of Camillus, Part 1